neighbors. You can't live with them, and you can't live without them. Right? Neighbors, they're there for you when you need them, but sometimes they are so frustrating. I remember the first house that Rach and I owned, we moved in, and there was a nice guy who lived next door, and he was gone a lot of the time, and he was quiet, and so our first introduction to neighbors was this peaceful reality, and then all of a sudden, his son moved in, and he moved out, and his son brought a whole group of people in, and they did all kinds of things that were frustrating, most of them easy to overlook, except he had this dirt bike, and I don't have anything against dirt bikes, but this man made me have something against dirt bikes, because here's what he would do. He would just turn it on in his garage and rev the engine for hours. And then he installed what appeared to be a spotlight in the garage so that he could have a spotlight on in late hours of the night and rev the engine. I I don't know how long we lived there, two years, something like that. And I never saw him ride the bike, but for hours I heard him ride the bike. Neighbors, you can't live with them, you can't live without them, right? You have stories like that. Neighbors who are frustrating to you. Neighbors who are wonderful. Neighbors who it's been such a blessing to live next to. Neighbors who I don't even know if I know their name, let alone their story. And then I wonder if we invited all of our neighbors in this morning and we were to ask them to truthfully speak about us, what they would say about us. Now, I do not have a dirt bike, but I'm certain that my neighbor, because we live in a twin, has heard me yell at my kids. I'm certain they've heard Jackson playing the piano loudly at all kinds of hours of the day. I'm certain they've heard Tyler get really angry at Fortnite at random hours of the night, right? And so I wonder what they're formulating about this pastor and his family who lives next door and all of these things. Well, we want to take a number of weeks this summer and look at the concept of what it means to love your neighbor. And really there's three reasons we want to do this, two of which are practical, and one for me is glaringly obvious. Uh, Many of you know that Hope Alliance is a multi-congregational church. In October, uh, we went from one church uh, who met together to being one church who meets in two congregations here in Bethlehem and also in Nazareth. And we've kind of become fully established in these new congregational realities, but really it's, it's easy as you get into the new flow and routine of meeting together as a church to forget that love is not just meant to be vertical to God, it's also meant to be horizontal to those around us. That we're in this community, not just because it affords us a place to gather and worship God, but because we truly desire to be an outpost of God's kingdom to this whole community, and to where you live, work, play, eat, etc. So for me, as a leader, neighbor, the concept of loving your neighbor is really important. The second reality is we're doing it in the summer on purpose, because for the summer, for many of us, we can just breathe a little bit easier for a couple of months, right? Schedules are maybe not so as intense. Maybe we can rethink. Maybe there's some opportunities as we talk about this subject, to have some practical risk-taking as Jesus followers. And maybe it's possible to begin to include some of this in our regular rhythm so that when September comes, this is kind of part of what we do, not another thing that Pastor Adam's asking me 
to do. And set aside those two practical realities, which hopefully scratch a niche for you. You cannot get away from the fact that loving your neighbor is central to the message of Jesus. So whether or not either of those two practical things resonate with you, the glaring, glaringly obvious reason we're talking about this is because Jesus talks about it an awful lot. So what better way for us to jump into this new series on loving your neighbor than to go to one of the classic passages, one of the classic teachings of Jesus on this concept, often called the parable of the Good Samaritan. So if you have a copy of the scriptures, you can turn to Luke chapter 10, verse 25. Uh, If you don't have a copy, just feel free to listen to the story. Many of you will be familiar with this. Luke 10, verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. They were famous for doing this because they weren't sure that Jesus was quite orthodox, that he really believed the things he needed to believe, right? And he said, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said, you have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, and so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? We'll pause there. The story starts off with a lawyer asking questions. We have an idea in our society of what a lawyer is, but this idea of this lawyer is much different from what we perceive a lawyer to be. A lawyer in the days of Jesus was not necessarily someone who would argue in a court of law. This is someone who had devoted their life to understanding, probably memorizing, the law of God, the Mosaic Covenant, the Ten Commandments, and all of the other things that come out in that book, which is the favorite of many of yours, Leviticus, right? You love that one. Everyone loves Leviticus. These men, that was their life. Leviticus was their life. They knew it. They knew it back and forth. They invented all kinds of series to follow it. So when we're talking about a lawyer, this is the kind of person we're talking about. Someone who would be steeped in religion and very intently trying to toe the religious line, as it were, in order to make sure that God was happy in receiving him. So it says that he asked Jesus, teacher, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And he says... Uh, We're told that he does this to test Jesus. In other words, he probably knows the answer to this already. He just wants to see if Jesus knows the answer to this. We've done this before, right? And so Jesus says to him, well, listen, you're a lawyer. You tell me. What does the law say? How did you read it? And the man says, well, you should love God with everything. And he says, and also love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus affirms that. He says, this is exactly right. It's a perfect summary of the law. He says, if you do that, and you live. And so then the man asked him a follow-up question. Okay, well, I need to know then who is my neighbor. Now, there could be a couple of reasons for this. Perhaps the test continues, right? Or perhaps Jesus passed the test, and now he's getting to the actual question that he wanted to ask, that he wants clarity on, 
for himself. So he says, who is my neighbor? Now, before we go on to the rest of the story, we have to pause and think about this lawyer for a minute and think about the questions that he has asked. These questions are very self-centered. Think about them all. What must I do to have eternal life? Who is my neighbor? Everything is revolving in the realm of this particular person. And what I would suggest to you is they speak of a person who is pursuing a transactional relationship with God. That is, I give and I get, right? What do I have to give in order to get from God? A very transactional relationship. And so Jesus, wanting to answer his question, but more importantly, begin to shift the focus of it, tells him the story. And so we'll pick back up in Luke chapter 10. This is what Jesus says. He says in verse 30, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him, and he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, gave him to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expenses you may have. Which of these men do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell in the hands of the robbers? And the expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. So Jesus answers the question with a story, classic Jesus, right? He tells the story, he says, a man was met by robbers on this passageway, this road, and this story would have made perfect sense to the people who are listening, the lawyer and others, because this road was known to be incredibly dangerous, had little nooks and curves where people would jump out and attack unsuspecting passers-by, rob them, beat them, sometimes kill them, sometimes leave them for dead. Jesus brings up this scenario, which is incredibly plausible, and then he identifies three different people. He says, there's a priest who comes by, and the priest passes on the other side of the road. And there's a Levite who comes by, and the Levite passes on the other side of the road. And then there is a Samaritan who comes by, and he chooses not to go to the other side, but to engage the man and to care for him. Many of you are familiar with this part of the story. We won't belabor the point. The priest, obviously, is the holy person in Israel. Not necessarily a high priest, but from the people of Aaron. Uh, he is, is serving as a representative between God and man. He is a holy person, a mediator between God and man who chooses not to engage the man in need. A Levite would be the next step down from a priest. He's kind of like the priestly intern. He's a person who helps out 
who gets worship set up, who helps with the sacrifices, who does a lot of the temple realities. And so he comes by and he engages in the same way as the priest. And then Jesus, as if continually moving down this holiness ladder, all of a sudden jumps all the way to the bottom, right? Priest, Levite, who will be next? Samaritan? All the way at the bottom of the Jewish landscape. A Samaritan for a Jewish person in the days of Jesus was persona non grata, probably worse than a tax collector. For those of you who don't know the background of Samaritans, they were from the northern tribe of Israel, Uh, And after the tribes in the Old Testament split, the northern tribe first fell into exile. The Assyrians came in and conquered it. And they took out many of the Jewish people into Assyria. And they brought in all kinds of Assyrian people into the north. Those who were left began to intermarry with the new Assyrians who came in. And they began to have their Jewish faith compromised with idols and all kinds of other things. They became known as Samaritans. So here are Jewish people who see themselves as perfectly pure, unblemished, untarnished, priest, Levite. Now all of a sudden we have the amoral, compromised, no good, irreligious Samaritan. And rather than moving away, he moves towards the man. Let's just pause and address the elephant in the room before we go any further. You can be a deeply religious person and completely miss the heart of God. You can go through all kinds of religious routines, including church attendance, Bible reading, prayer reciting, all kinds of these other things, and never truly engage the heart of God. And this story, if nothing else, is jabbing at that loud and clear. We'll talk about that a little more, but let's set that aside just for a moment. Jesus goes on uh, and finishes the story. So in part, in telling the story, Jesus is wanting to answer the question, who is the neighbor? So who is the neighbor? Well, a couple of realities of what a Jewish person might have thought a neighbor were or was were shattered when he said this. Because in the Jewish reality, yeah, we need to help foreigners, but not Samaritans, right? The Samaritan is chosen here and shown as a hero, in essence, to sort of Break free this reality of a neighbor only being people who are like you. Also notice that this neighbor story doesn't happen within a town or within someone's local community. It is a person who a life intersects with. And so I think a fair way for us to take this story and to try to answer the question, who is our neighbor, is to say that our neighbor is anyone with whom our life naturally intersects. Your neighbor lives in your neighborhood, yes. But your neighbor also works at your office. And your neighbor is the person who you see at the grocery store time after time. And your neighbor is all kinds of other people. Now, this story particularly tells of someone who's in dire need. And certainly, there are times in which our neighbors are in need, and we're called to respond to that. But to be a neighbor does not mean to necessarily have a glaring physical need in the moment. could be to have the need of companionship or a need of a spiritual connection to God or the need of simple community that we all share in humanity. But as I suggested to you earlier, Jesus is not just interested in answering the question, 
that this man has of who your neighbor is. He's actually interested in transitioning the whole focus of the conversation to something greater. And so did you realize that Jesus finishes the whole story without an answer, but instead with a question? He answers a question with a question. The man says, who is my neighbor? And Jesus finishes it by saying, who was the neighbor? And in essence, I want to suggest to you that the transition that Jesus is making is from transaction to transformation. That there is a such thing as transactional faith that says, what must I do to make God happy so that I can get from God the things I want from God? This is what's happening in the lawyer's life. And Jesus is saying, I get why you're asking that question, but it's not really the actual question. The real question that's going on is your heart, in your heart is, what kind of a person do I need to be to truly reflect who God is? You see, Jesus is saying the question is not, who is my neighbor, but am I a good neighbor? You see it? And the only means to becoming a truly good neighbor is through actual transformation. Think about it. A caterpillar somehow, through the beauty of creation and the reality of its constitution, can become a butterfly through metamorphosis and transformation. But he does not go to the store and buy scotch tape and some paper wings and apply them to his back in order to become what he intends to become. There's a difference between transaction and transformation, and Jesus is calling us to that. Let me say it very simply. That is that neighboring is not something you do. A neighbor is someone you are. You hear it? Neighboring is not something you do. A neighbor is someone you are. So it begs the question then, if we have Jesus here and we, and, and we want to ask him the question, the question I want to ask him is, okay, so then what is a good neighbor? And Jesus in this story answers this question. He gives us two uh, incredible answers to it. One is, here's what a neighbor is not, priest and Levite. Here's what a neighbor is, a Samaritan. What's fascinating to me is that the priest and Levite both have something happened in their mind, in their head, that leads them to move away from the man on the side of the road. Jesus says, a good neighbor is someone who does not move away from the neighbors around them. Now think about it for a minute with me. We won't spend lots of time here because over the next several weeks, we will tease out some of these realities together. But there are a multitude of reasons why the priest and the Levite chose to move away from this man. And quite frankly, why you and I choose to move away from our neighbors with regularity. And almost all of them, if we listen to them, make logical sense. Because what Jesus is calling us to is, quite frankly, something countercultural. I think in some ways Jesus doesn't give us the why for these men, because the why is almost immeasurable and almost undefinable. Could be so many different things. Let's think about it for just a minute, right? The why could be some kind of social bias. For certain, Jesus is poking at this, right? It's why he chooses a Samaritan. Now, he doesn't say that the man uh, who's hurt is a Samaritan, so there's not that differentiation. But by including a Samaritan in the story, Jesus is clearly poking at this reality of social 
bias, that at the end of the story, this Jewish holy person is going to have to say the Samaritan was right and the Jewish holy person wasn't. That's super hard. Why? Because we're not naturally good neighbors. All of us have social bias. And let's just call a spade a spade for a minute. Things that keep us from being good neighbors. Racism. Let's just be honest for a minute. Right? Racism. Prejudice. A condescending view of others because of their appearance, social class, socioeconomic status, whatever you might have it. All of these things force us to cross over to the other side of the road a lot of the time. Or maybe it's not social bias for these men. Maybe it's just, quite frankly, a lack of urgency. Let's just be honest. Sometimes you see something and you say, well, it's not really, it's not striking me right now, but someone is surely going to take care of that, right? I don't have to deal with that. Someone is going to come and take care of that. Or maybe it's not even that someone else is going to come and take care of it. Maybe there's just not really any priority to it in your life, and so you just move right on by. For many of us, as we consider our neighbors who are not necessarily beaten and laying on the side of the road, but regular people just like us, there is a lack of urgency and therefore a lack of intentionality in connecting to them. It moves us to the other side of the road. Jesus says, this is not what a good neighbor is. Or let's get a little tougher here. Maybe the issue is that it might cost us something. Right? It could cost us time. I hear you loud and clear. I speak the same language as you. We only have so much time in a day, let alone in our lives. And now we're saying you've got to love neighbors too? Well, think about it for a minute. These priests could have been off to a great meeting. It could have been a great fundraising moment. These priests lived off the ties of the people. Maybe they were eager to get home to their family. There was all kinds of time realities that could have moved them to the other side of the road. And for many of us, we're analyzing this is going to cost us time. And I just got to be honest with you from the get-go, yes, it is going to cost you time. There's no two ways around that. Jesus says that will move you to the other side of the road. Or maybe it's going to cost you relationally, right? And some of us view it this right. We have this much capacity for relationships. The thought of adding more into that is overwhelming. I get it. I'm right there with you, right? And so you're like, I would wave to this person, but if I wave to them, they might come over. And if they come over, they might talk to me. And if they talk to me, it could go on for some time. And if it goes on for some time, they might want to talk to me tomorrow. And a relationship might form from it. We think like this sometimes, right? Because there's relational cost. This idea that once you're in, you're in. And so we don't start because of what might come out of it. I remember my sister, my older sister Carla, has a a deep uh, and and beautiful heart for kids who um, are disadvantaged in life and who have been wrongly treated, who are poor, and she, would, she works as a nurse, and, and she would oftentimes care for these children. And, and sometimes she, she, would, uh, got, she would bring them to our family events. And I remember this kid, his name was Jaman. He was just an, just an awesome kid. And I loved that she brought him. And, and then 
Like, I remember after engaging with the first time, I remember having this thought. This, that please don't judge me for this. I remember thinking to myself, I wish that she had never brought him because now my heart is connected to him. Now it matters to me all of the pain that he's going through. See, there's a relational connection. Once you're in, you're in, right? And for this man who stopped, when he was in, he was in. Or maybe there's a personal cost for you. Well, think about it for a minute. If this man was beaten and robbed in this place, and you pause to help him, there's a high likelihood that you are victim number two. Or in the sinister world in which we live, and in which Jesus lived, oftentimes people would fake being the victim, so that when someone would stop to help them, they could seize on them in that moment. And so we say, well, I don't know what could happen to me over there. I'm going to pass on the other side of the road. And for many of us, though, we're not passing on the other side of the road of someone who's beaten and been robbed and disadvantaged. We are analyzing what the personal cost could be to us. Will we get taken advantage of? Will we get used? Could I get hurt in this reality? The answer to all of these, of course, is yes. And then there's the one that probably is the most sinister of them all, and yet clothed in all kinds of fake holiness. It's what I call religious separation. That we can't be there because it might corrupt us. And likely this is probably the main reason that that the Levite and the priest choose out of this. Because to touch blood is to become unclean in the Old Testament law. To touch a dead man, which this person could have been, was to become incredibly unclean. And there were ways in the law to overcome that, but it would have taken all kinds of realities of purification and all of these other things. So better to remain holy and therefore withdrawn. Now, if, if God thought that to be holy was to be withdrawn, then Jesus never got the message, right? Because he never would have come, let alone hung out with the people that he hung out with. And yet, in the church in our day, less so than in previous generations, but still existing, we have a church who is cloistered and removed from the world for fear that the world might tarnish us as opposed to truly believing that a love for God always overflows into a love for neighbor. So we cannot be held back. John says, how can you love God and hate your brother? Answer, you can't. So something is wrong. Or for some, that a pursuit of holiness has so consumed them that they've become unaware of the world around them. It's the old saying, so heavenly-minded, you're no earthly good. There's truth in that statement. You can do 10 hours of Bible study every day. And you can read the Bible for forever. And you can pray for forever. And these are all wonderful things, but they are not the fullness of the life and the heart that God calls us. But this morning, rather than dwelling on all of these things and teasing them out, we'll talk about them starting with time next week because it's the big one, right? I want to get to the true crux of the answer of Jesus to how we become people who move towards our neighbors rather than moving 
away from them. Because whereas the priest and the Levite had something happen in their head, the Samaritan had something happen in his heart. See it? Jesus says the man took pity on him. This word pity um, is an interesting word. Uh, It's not necessarily a great uh, one-to-one translation in the English language. Pity means you look at him and think, oh, what a... He's in such horrible shape, I have to do something about him. The word pity actually is, is a word that means moved in deep compassion. Uh, there's a Greek word, splinkta, and this is the verb of it. And it's the idea that, that uh, you're so moved in the depth of your gut, because the Greeks, uh, this is cool, I think, believe that your heart was in your gut, right? But that's where your feelings were. And so the point is that it was, it was deep in him. It was a guttural reaction for him, not something that he conjured up in his mind. Deep within him, he was moved towards it. And I think that there are two things that are inherent in this reality. How do we have a guttural, heartfelt, compassionate, pitiful, loving move towards our neighbor? Two things have probably happened to this Samaritan. The first is there's been a transformation. In his heart. Remember, I said at the beginning, if for nothing else, the story tells us that you can go through the religious motions and not get at the heart of God. That is, that religion does not move us to have a heart for our neighbor. Religion, in and of its own accord, does not move us towards our neighbor, it moves us towards ourself. So that even when we attempt to love our neighbor, we're doing it for ourselves to, as the lawyer put it, justify ourselves. Moving towards the neighbor comes from a transformation that happened. See, these priests and Levites, in essence, were keeping the law and yet missing the very heart of the law. Many people think that the law in the Old Testament was either a set of harsh laws to prove that we were terrible people, or the bare minimum that you needed to do to just get into God's kingdom. And both of those realities of the law miss what God was doing with the Mosaic law. The Mosaic law was there to enculturate in the people of God grace and mercy and forgiveness and love. Why? Because God had dealt with them in that way. And if they began to live in the presence of God and live according to this culture of reality, they would be people who reflected God to the world. That's the purpose of the law. It's not to prove how terrible we are. Now, the law proved how bad we were at it, right? It did that, had that effect on it. And so what we find is that we need transformation deep within us. We just finished studying 2 Samuel, and you remember that David, after his great sin with Bathsheba, came to the same conclusion. I can go through all the religious motions, but unless God creates in me a new heart, I'm helpless. And God himself, through the prophets, would even say things like, you know what, Israel? I hate your sacrifices. We've talked about this before. This is confusing to us because God told them to do the sacrifices. So it is not the sacrifices themselves, but it is the heart and the motivation in which they are engaging them. As with David and the prophets, he says, God prefers a broken heart of love for God that leads to love for others. That a vertical love 
is always connected to a horizontal love. And probably, though I can't prove this, this Samaritan has been closely affected by a scenario just like this at some other time in his life. There's really no other reason to engage in something like this. The priest and the Levite probably had never been beaten up, probably never robbed, maybe never saw it before, easy to pass on the other side of the road. But the Samaritan had probably been the recipient of some harsh treatment in his life. And because of the way he had been treated and received with grace or mercy at some other point in his life, was able then to respond in a similar way. And so, if the question before us is not just who is my neighbor, but am I a good neighbor? If the answer is, well, of your own accord, probably not. You need a transformed heart and personal experience with this reality. Then there is only one means by which we can truly be transformed. And he's the one telling the story. It's Jesus. See, the parable of the Good Samaritan at the end of the day is not to say, now go be a Good Samaritan. The parable of the Good Samaritan is meant for us to say, who would do that? We don't know anyone like that. Maybe once, but not really who would cross ethnic lines, who would give of himself, who would give of his time, who would do all of these. Who would do that? No one would do that. And Jesus, perhaps smirking behind and said, just wait. Because the good Samaritan has his name, and his name is Jesus. Who rather than walking away from us, when the Apostle Paul rightly says of us, we were dead in our sins and transgressions. Moved near. So we celebrate every Christmas in the incarnation that Jesus comes near. And Isaiah 53 says that He is wounded so He can bind up our wounds. And on, his, on the cross, He pays the debts that we owe. And after His resurrection and ascension, He promises to come back to wrap everything up. See, the point of this story is certainly that we need to figure out what it means to be a good neighbor. But it is not to provide an equation towards it. It is to point our focus to the only one who has ever been a good neighbor. Jesus is the neighbor that we need. The Apostle John says in John chapter 1 that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Paraphrase translation, Jesus moved into the neighborhood and in so doing engaged humanity as neighbors. Why? Because his heart was fully given to the Father. 
And in so doing, he transforms us. The more that we are engaged as the people of God through the person and work of Jesus, the more that we are saturated in this story of Jesus as the Good Samaritan, coming for us, rescuing us, saving us, coming back to finish all of the things that he has started, the more that we are transformed. Because the more our heart is given to loving God for what He has done. And as our heart is given more to loving God, it begins to shape our life. And one of the ways it shapes our life is that we begin to love neighbors. Why? Because we've been there. We've been on the side of the road. And Jesus stopped for us. And so now as people of Jesus, we're learning what it means to not in our minds move away but in our gut, move towards. You'll hear some practical realities over the next couple of weeks of ways in which we cannot move away. But if you do not internalize what I've said this morning, all of it will be amiss. It'll be just adding on scotch tape and paper wings to your caterpillar back. What you need is not steps to be a good neighbor. What you need is Jesus. And the good news this morning that replaces any good advice I can give you is that Jesus is here. The resurrected Jesus and His Spirit who embodies and empowers you is transforming you into the people that God calls you to be. Who would stop? Who would overcome social bias? Who would have an urgency to engage? Who would analyze all the costs and still go for it? Who would be moved by a heart expressed in religion to engage others rather than separated by a false holiness? There's a reason I don't have personal stories for you this morning because there is only one story and it is Jesus but the more his story becomes yours the more he lives that story through you to the world around you who is your neighbor anyone with whom your life naturally intersects but that's not the real point The real point is, are you a good neighbor? And the answer, if you're being honest, is probably not really. And so there is only one practical application. Don't go home today and wave to the person across the street. We might talk about that next Sunday. Go home today and get on your knees and worship the one who stopped for you. Can I pray with you?